about pouring a glass of wine, there is a whole lot that happened before the cork came out of the bottle or the cap was loosened. Somebody acquired land and planted grapes, then crushed and fermented those grapes, then aged the resulting liquid and bottled it. There are a whole lot of steps and a whole lot of expertise in getting from grape to bottle. But when you think about it, beyond the complexities of producing the wine, there are also complex systems in place to sell the wine, to buy the wine, to ship the wine. At so many stops along the way, there are rules to be followed and taxes to be paid and regulations to comply with. In short, there's a whole lot of law that accompanies the journey from grape to the bottle and from bottle to the distributor and distributor to restaurant and restaurant to someone who's just looking for a big juicy red with their steak for dinner. Not surprisingly, some of the people who work in this complex system are lawyers helping their clients navigate the pathways. So pour yourself your drink of choice, whether that's wine or water, tea or coffee, and join me for today's episode as we explore alcohol and advocacy. Talking to chefs and sometimes lawyers, but always to people who love food. You're listening to the Chef Demoni Podcast. Here's your host, Graham McLennan. Wow, it does seem like spring has sprung. I hope it has where you are too. Thank you for joining me. It's Friday once again, which means we are back on the Chef Demoni podcast, at least every second Friday. Chef Demoni, if you are new here, is a podcast about food. I've worked both as a lawyer and as a professional cook, and Chef Demoni is my way of staying in touch with the culinary world now that I'm back to being a lawyer full time. My guests on Chef Demoni are often chefs and food-loving lawyers, and sometimes my guests and I will explore what goes so well with food, wine, and other drinks. Today, my guest is Dan Coles. He's a Vancouver-based lawyer with a practice focused on litigation and the hospitality sector. Dan is a shareholder at Owen Bird Law Corporation, and he kindly hosted me in a boardroom at their firm for our talk. Dan is also a blogger, and you can follow his writing at the Alcohol and Advocacy blog. I will put a link in the show notes. And that blog, of course, is the inspiration for the title of today's episode. Some background for today's show. We actually recorded this interview just over a year ago in February of 2020, right before COVID-19 landed on us all. Then, of course, we had the pandemic, and there was a break between Sheftimony seasons, and here we are. I'm delighted to be sharing Dan's and my talk with you today. And it turns out to be very well-timed, actually, because a matter that Dan talks about that he was expecting to go to court shortly after our interview last year was postponed, like so many other things during these pandemic days, and it is again now poised to go to court soon. You'll hear about it on the episode today, and Dan has kindly offered to give us an update once the court has spoken on the matter. A disclaimer for the episode today. Like always, Chef Demoni is a podcast about food and food-related topics. It never has been and is not legal advice of any kind. Although Dan and I do talk about some legal matters, including some emerging and nuanced issues, please treat this episode for what it is. Two people having a conversation in a boardroom over a beer. Again, this is not in any way legal advice. Plus, as I say, the interview happened just over a year ago, and laws are always changing, it seems especially so these days, in the hospitality sector with all of the COVID-19 developments we've seen. All right, I think we're clear. No legal advice here, just a talk that I hope you will find as interesting as I did. You'll hear today about Dan's background in the hospitality sector. He actually worked in the industry directly in Halifax before his legal career started. 
So over six years, Dan bust tables, changed kegs, he worked the bar, he worked the door. So the hospitality industry is one that Dan knows well. We have a good chat about those early years in the industry, and then we dive into Dan's work as a lawyer. We talk about the systems in place largely focused on British Columbia, but also elsewhere in Canada for buying, shipping, distributing liquor. You'll hear a story about a whole lot of Scotch whiskey being seized from one of Dan's clients' premises, and this is the case that we should be learning more about later this year after it gets to court. In talking about that issue, Dan talks about specialty whiskies from Scotland available through the Scotch Malt Whiskey Society. It's a really interesting distribution method, and you'll need to know what a hogshead is for that discussion. Pretty simple, really. It's just a very large wooden cask. Dan also dives into a couple of Supreme Court of Canada cases talking about alcohol-related issues. There's R. and Como and Ron Corelli and Duplessis. I'll put a link in the show notes in case anyone is keen to read a little law. We also talk about the future of alcohol sales. Will that involve digital stores, Amazon-style stores? We talk about tax issues and markups. We talk about a bunch of things, so let's get right to it. Join me in the boardroom of the law firm Owen Bird in downtown Vancouver. Here's my talk with litigator and blogger Dan Coles. All right. Well, Dan, listen, thanks so much for being on the show, first of all. And secondly, maybe I should say firstly, for welcoming me into your firm and, and offering me a delicious, uh, who is it, 33 acres, 33 acres beer. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. It's uh, the, the least amount of hospitality we could offer. <laughs> it's terrific. Well, before we get into your legal practice, which I really do want to talk to you about, let's focus a bit purely on the hospitality side, uh, because I understand you're from Halifax, and prior to your legal work, you actually uh, accrued a few years directly in the hospitality industry. What was that all about? Yeah, since I was about 18 until finished law school, so 20 23 or 24, I worked at a place called the Economy Shoe Shop on Argyle Street. Have you been to Halifax? No. Okay, so uh, Argyle Street is like the heart of downtown, old Halifax, like cobblestone sidewalks and a lot of bars and restaurants. And the Economy Shoe Shop, which unfortunately has been sold and I think changed a lot since I was there, and maybe we'll talk about some of the reasons why I didn't make it. Uh, One of those great old heritage Halifax buildings where, you know, it's a big old structure that's been renovated and demising walls put in a hundred different ways over the years. So it's layers of different tile flooring and cobblestone flooring and paving and anyway the economy shoe shop was notionally four service bars so it's three different storefronts with all the adjoining or demising walls knocked down and then in the center of what would be the city block they opened up a fourth bar what they called the belgian bar and it just had a big skylight built over it but this would have no street frontage at all and otherwise be unusable space. So it was called the Economy Shoe Shop, had an old neon sign, but it was actually four bars, the, the shoe shop, the backstage, the Belgium was in the back, and the diamond bar was the old smoking bar. Love so, it. you know, probably, you know, 250, 300 seats. Wow. Big, 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 big place. Yeah. But owned by a guy named Vic Siprick, who was an old set designer. And the economy shoe shop was an old neon sign that he had in his uh, garage. And uh, the inside was just, you know, beautiful plants and uh, interesting paintings and, you know, National Geographic magazines. Something like a Donnelly pub would do out here now, but this was very 
authentic and just it had a different, more organic kind of feel to it. So yeah, I worked there for five or six years, did everything from busing to doorman to bartender. I think I did some management shifts along the way, a lot of serving. Was there a food component to it or was it straight up bar? Uh, there was a food component and one of the idiosyncrasies of the place was a very, very small kitchen for a lot of seats. So as I'm sure you can relate to, the food weights became unmanageable some nights and we were super popular for our nachos. So you'd have like Halifax Mooseheads are playing or a Neptune local theater would have an event uh, or production on and everyone would come in and you'd get like, you know, 80 orders for nachos all at one time. And they've got one nacho oven and every time the the cooks would open it up to put a new order or check in one, of course, the hot air would come out and you'd have hour-long nacho weights which would screw up the whole, you know, that whole side of the kitchen. Sure. And customers would get very upset. But that was, you know, part of the charm I like to think of it. But if you were, you know, starving before or after a hockey game, um, you probably didn't think it was very charming. (laughs) But it was a full full menu. And, I mean, we had different chefs that came and went. And sometimes it was, like, very good made-in-house soups and, and other products. And sometimes it was straight GFS style, you know, we didn't have a deep fryer when I was there, but it was definitely you know, some pre-made, you know, spring rolls. More, uh, I was going to say traditional pub food, but that's <laughs> untraditional traditional yeah, pub food. Yeah, yeah. Well, one question, I'll just ask it now because mm. this might be a good space for it, is whether you see similarities between your work in the hospitality business and your work as a lawyer. And, and I see a few of them. And one, to give you an example, one I often say is, the the prep work involved in each mm. and so I, I often equate doing a trial to be something like dinner service and the more prepared you are before either of them starts the better off you're going to be but you can get curveballs in each of them mm-hmm. right including yeah. being avalanche for nacho orders or yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whatever yeah. the equivalent might be on the law side yeah i mean prep work obvious is you know you, you come in at, I think we start at 5. So you come in at 4 o'clock or 4.30. Some days you're taking down the stools. Some days there's been you know lunch service going on. But you're cleaning out your wells. You're getting your ice. You're chopping up your citrus. You're, you're checking out how many beers you need from below. You're all sorts of cleaning and organizing and stuff like that. And, and if you're not hungover and you weren't at 4 o'clock, you can do all of that. And when people start coming in at 5 o'clock, it feels really good because you have a bunch of beer and you have a bunch of ice and you got all your lemons and limes and it's great. You came in at like five oh five, and you're still <laughs> you're hurt. feeling a little of yesterday. Right, you're feeling a little beat up, and it's going to come like an avalanche. Yeah. Then it's going to be rough, and I think that's super analogous to trial work or, or lawyer stuff generally. But also, it, it, it's a customer service at the end of the day, both lawyering and bartending. And there is so much about this is how this customer or client wants it done, and they have their expectations. And whether you think those expectations are reasonable or lawful, you know, you, you have to do them up into a point where you decide, look, I just, I can't do this for one reason or another. But in both lines of work, the customer is often right. And you want the customer to have a good time and come back right. and bring their friends. And bring them so, I, yeah. And, and on like a more personal level, uh, just talking to people. You know, as, as, a, as a bartender or a waiter, you introduce yourself to strangers. You uh, try and make them feel welcome and comfortable and, and, and hopefully strike up a rapport. And you do that as a lawyer with clients or you do that with witnesses. 
Well, let's move on a little more expressly into your legal practice. And I know you, like me, focus on the litigation side as opposed to the the paperwork lawyers or the solicitor's mm-hmm. work. But talk a little bit about, Dan, if you would, about the hospitality space and how that intersects with your with your work life. Yeah. The, the service of alcohol, as you know, is highly regulated in all of the provinces. And uh, I'm sure you've got lots of other episodes about the food side and, and, and health and safety and, and all that stuff. But, but liquor is very much regulated from uh, how you buy it, um, how you sell it, how much you sell it for, you sell too much of it to any one person <laughs> at the wrong time, the wrong time how you market it. So it's a very regulated space. And um, I, uh, as a lawyer, deal with people normally in kind of two instances. One instance is they'd like to have a license. So they'd like to buy or open a new bar or restaurant or a new distillery or a new brewery, and they need help dealing with Victoria on those issues. Or they already have a license. And this is more common. They've um, been accused of doing something wrong. So a liquor inspector, more often than not, is how these issues arise, has come into their establishment and says, look, you are, you are in contravention of various sections of the uh, Liquor Control and Licensing Act. And that can be stuff on the very low end of all of your fire extinguishers. Sorry, all of your fire exits are covered by kegs. You'd be not surprised about how common that is that you know the back door with the fire exit sign near the kitchen near the washrooms stacked right so that'll be a fine or it's overcrowding you've got a very small space and on a friday night liquor inspector with a police officer with a fire marshal comes by they do a head count they go wow you're licensed for 35 occupants you got 57 guys in here like you're in trouble you know that's a lower end of the spectrum to the middle end of the spectrum um, which are the most common fines or over service, we've come into your establishment and we observed an intoxicated patron or a minor. And we can talk about that in, in, a, in a, if you like in more detail. Uh, and then there's the higher end of the spectrum, which is like the really serious, says the enforcement branch contraventions about, you know, uh, record keeping where you're purchasing alcohol from, uh-huh. Um, how you're engaging with requests from liquor inspectors or the licensing branch, the the sort of infractions that they say go to the very heart of the licensing regime, and they don't have much of a sense of humor about those sorts about of things. Those yeah. things. Okay. Yeah. Well, there's one I can think of on what I think is the more, more serious end that I definitely want to come to with you. But before we get there, let's spend some time in the sort of the medium serious zone. <laughs> um, <laughs> And infractions for, say, serving people you shouldn't be serving. Yep. So, and, and one thing I've heard is on the, on the underage side, so say if they're serving minors, is it true that, that the liquor branch, somebody will send in underage people to try to buy alcohol, sort of as a testing of the, of the licensees? That's right. They've got the Minors as Agent Program in British Columbia. MAP is the acronym. And they, being the Liquor Control Licensing Branch, employs... I think they're normally 18-year-olds who look older and they will be sent in to establishments to test compliance. So, so the, the idea of the, the regime is voluntary compliance at all times and inspections occur randomly to any licensed establishment at any time simply to test compliance. That's, that's, a, that's a heart of a regulatory inspection. And that, that principle applies whether we're talking about fisheries or hunting or environmental, right? Just random inspections. It's a different 
legal regime when we're talking about an investigation. And we can, if you want, we can talk about uh, R.V. Jarvis' Supreme Court of Canada decision about um, inspections versus investigations. And at some point, inspectors cross a Rubicon when they are, that's right. When they are, when they are no longer um, randomly testing compliance with an administrative regime, and instead they are now actively gathering evidence in support of a, of a conviction for some sort of contravention. But that, but that's off topic. So yeah, uh, liquor inspectors will find underage individuals who look perhaps older. They will send them into establishments for the purpose of buying a drink. They they, they won't have fake ID. And as I understand, they're not allowed to lie about their age. The idea is if they just walk in, will an establishment staff serve them a drink? And when they do, they're hit with, you know, $7,500 fine. And Yeah, it's, it's big money. It, it's it? big money. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a lot of money. And more importantly, um, you know, it's sort of a strike against you. So in the sense that if that happens again within, I think it's now two years, you may now be looking at losing your license for a number of days or a significantly increased fine. So it's pretty serious. And yeah, licensees beware. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, what, what is the relative prevalence of those sorts of, to the extent you know, those sort, sorts of infractions versus, is over-serving a big problem? Are, those are the one and two. Is that right? Okay. Underage services every, so every... I wouldn't say maybe not every year, but the branch will release statistics of sort of their top 10 enforcements. Serving minors is always number one, but it's almost always done through the minors as agent program. Because if you think about it, if I'm actually, you know, a high school kid who can actually find a bar where they will serve me, I'm not probably, I'm not go no, <laughs> no. And you know, if, if something goes seriously wrong, that, that young person gets injured or I suppose a diligent licensee catches that person and self-reports. But it, it is the number one source of enforcement action through the Miners as Agent program. Uh, I think a close second most years would be over-service. And that is normally when liquor inspectors just observe drunk individuals in bars and restaurants. And you see... Um, sort of uh, published enforcement decisions where um, branch adjudicators are grappling with the subjective observations of liquor inspectors and police officers. Right. But, you know, you, <laughs> some description, some evidence is pretty damning about... Pretty descriptive. Yeah, you know, people crawling around on all, floor, on all fours and dropping bottles and falling into bathroom stalls. And uh, the cases that, that contraventions are proven is normally two or three liquor inspectors with their independent observations that are pretty damning. Uh, enforcement action that aren't successful is when you've got just one liquor inspector saying, well, the breath smelled of alcohol and the eyes were glossy, and it's like, well, you're in a bar, there's spilled beer around, you know. But those are, the, those are always the, the big one and two. One and two, yeah. okay. Can you tell us a bit about the distinction between, because I know this distinction exists, but that's about all I know about yep. it, between a restaurant license mm-hmm. where you're allowed to serve alcohol yep. uh, and a liquor primary, which in, in my mind connotes a nightclub or something. But what, what are the differences and, and is it that much harder to get a liquor primary license? It seems those are fewer and further between, is that right? So a food primary license are the easiest to get. And a food primary license, the significance is the focus must be on the service of food at all times. 
So you can get a food primary license. Essentially, you're just any restaurant. And, and I think we'd all be surprised at weird hole-in-the-wall places where you can get some sort of food at various hours and they happen to sell beer and you go, well, this is great. But the catch is, if you're selling beer, the kitchen's got to be open. And the kitchen isn't just slinging out peanuts. It's actually offering actually, meaningful food. Right. But you get a food primary license without any sort of public consultation or local government input. So I can open my burrito stand and I can sell beer and I can just apply using some kind of regular paperwork without a big consultation. And that's wonderful. Like a primary, uh, you get local government input. So, uh, okay. so that's got a couple layers of complication. But most significantly, it means you're going to have a sign above your building uh. that says... There's a 30-day consultation period where everyone and their dog can write in and say, oh, my gosh, these guys want to serve alcohol till 2 in the morning, and it's going to destroy the fabric of this neighborhood. So, yeah, so it's local government input, local government input informed by the citizens, and this would also include uh, First Nations where applicable. So there's a lot more uh, costs and hurdles and, and um People you have to answer to right. if you right. want to put in a new liquor primary there. But of course, if you're a liquor primary, uh, generally speaking, you can operate later. You don't have to worry about a kitchen. But then it gets complicated because a couple of years ago, um, in response to the 2014 YAP report, the government says, we're now going to give liquor primary licenses to businesses that are not in the hospitality sector in the traditional sense. Barbershops. Movie theaters. Okay. You know, right. So, right, right. so yes. you, you can now buy, you know, lawfully have a beer at your barbershop or at a movie theater or at, I don't know, be as creative as you want to be. Art galleries. I know yeah. that's another example of places that are not normally thought of as a bar or a restaurant uh, or a clubhouse where you might get beer. Uh, so in one sense... It can kind of be easier to get because you don't need the infrastructure of a kitchen, a commercial kitchen and tables. But at the same time, all levels of government need to be on board. What is the, sorry, you mentioned a report, the YAP report? Yeah, yeah, 2014 YAP report. Mm -hmm. So this was under uh, Christy Clark's government. And these, these, there's a long history in British Columbia. Every 20 or 30 years the provincial government goes around the province, invests a ton of money, puts together, they've been called commissions in the past. This was the app report where they say, look, we acknowledge there's a bunch of problems with how liquor is licensed in this province. So tell us your complaints, taxpayers will compile a list and we'll try and make some changes. So they had them coming out of prohibition. They had them in the seventies and, um, I, I don't know all the figures off the top of my head, but things about like men and women entrances and you know, all the windows had to be fogged. And, you know, for, for some decades, you couldn't have food when alcohol was served because the theory was if we have food, the men will just stay here longer. Right? <laughs> We're just going to encourage more drinking. So we have to get rid of the food service, right? And all sorts, all sorts of different stuff. Yeah, but in 2014, that was one of the um, reports, uh, sorry, one of the recommendations was let's broaden the categories of places where you can have a beer. And a movie theater and an art gallery seem intuitive. Uh, golf yeah. courses, places, places like that where, yeah, it'd be, there's no, in my humble view, apparent social harm to having a beer while you're getting your hair cut or a glass of scotch. But, but I, I should say this. 
where you get into conflict is licensees operating outside of their purpose, which is another relatively popular contravention. So is that to say I have a sign out front that says Graham's Barbershop and I've got a barber pole, but really 80% of my revenue is coming from liquor sales? Absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know about that fact pattern specifically. More often, it's a food primary who hasn't gone through any of the hurdles the liquor primary down the street has, but they're now having a DJ in on Fridays and they're moving a bunch of hard bar and they're not actually paying for kitchen staff and all the tables are moved aside. Right. And now the guy down, popcorn available. right, exactly. Right. And now the guy down the street says, well, look, I have a liquor primary license, which I paid more for. And I have to comply with, I don't know, maybe whatever sort of municipal bells and whistles are on top of this. And this guy is eating my lunch down the street. So sometimes all of the complaints, I think, are not necessarily from members of the public, but it's other businesses saying, look, this is unfair competition. Let's move into the, the more serious violation, mm-hmm. if you will, then. Mm-hmm. And, and the, one, the, the story that I'm thinking about is one that I heard about years ago, and it's a place that I used to go to after doing some running training with friends of mine, uh, because friends knew the owners, and this was FETS on commercial drive right and we would go and i was always amazed because we would just go for a snack and a beer but i was amazed at the depth of their whiskey program there yeah uh, it, it 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 really stood out to me in any event it seems that it also stood out to the provincial government or some agency and they ended up having what sounds like it was actually a raid is that right what can you tell us about it so full disclosure fets are a client of mine okay. and the fergies the principals of fets very nice people and they run a fantastic bar program and very good food, actually. They have a yeah, great chef sure and, and, and good stuff. So they, and I have no idea if this is true, but they boasted that pre-raid, they had the uh, largest whiskey selection in the world. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Probably not the only bar in the world to make that claim, yeah. but having been there yeah, and, and seen the, uh, the old library shelf ladder type arrangement to get up to all the products, you can't help but believe that maybe it's true. Yeah, that a ton of whiskey and exquisitely curated. And one particular category of, of scotch they're particularly proud of is a private bottler called the Scotchmont Whiskey Society, which is Edinburgh-based out of Scotland. And they, they buy casks from reputable, renowned distilleries. They take them to their warehouse down in Edinburgh, and they will release them when they think it's right. So when... when Consumers of scotch typically think about 10, 12, 18-year expressions. They may do 13 or 11 or 7. So you've got not only scotch released at odd or unusual years, but uh, for those of us who buy into the terroir concept of that, uh, you know, a scotch aged in a barrel on, a, on Isla and, and the sun and the elevation, the salt air, there is going to impart flavors this won't have that benefit or that detriment, depending on how you look what at it. What happens, right, right? Right. So they'll release this scotch cask strength, so it, you know north of 60, 63, 64%, and whatever is in a hogshead, you know, 250 bottles, that's it. So this product is very rare. You know, releases, they call them oat turns. They happen once a month. Canada will get 12. 12 okay. bottles of, of one thing. This, this really, now, is this totally outside the purview of... 
the original distiller. In other words, the the, the bottler is deciding, and, and presumably the distiller just gives permission of that's part of the contractual arrangement. Yep, here you've got a hogshead, you can do with it as you will. That's right. Okay. That's right. And then are they is the is the bottler releasing it under the name of the distiller or they don't. They use a number system. Okay. So and I, I'm not sure how high the number goes, but you'll buy a bottle and have these really vivid descriptions. They've got a tasting panel that they, they put together of experts who come together with all of these really expressive, adjective-driven, exciting concepts of, you know, sea air and fireman's this and candy apple that. And, and they're really wonderful. And they'll, they'll give these scotches a name, but it's, it's like a Dewey Decimal System number. So it'll say like 17.231. So it's the 17th distillery that Scotch Malt Whiskey Society has done business with and the 231st barrel. But it's a code that can readily be cracked. So you Google, you know, SMWS 17, and you'll know that's McAllen, or you'll know that's Bowmore, or, or whoever, whoever it is, it is. or on. a silent distillery. You okay. know, they'll have yeah. they'll have barrels that are no longer commercially available. But yeah, they, as I understand it, they and they're not the only private bottler in Scotland. There are many. They are buying it on the understanding they will resell it. Mm-hmm. I say all this to convey how interesting and unique and rare this product is and when it's uh, imported into Canada their agent says we're only going to sell this to members so whether you're a a liquor store that sells it you can only sell it to people who have a membership card Ah, to the bottler in Scotland you would get your membership card through this agency in North America who is under that umbrella but that's right you were a member member of that that's right. Whatever it is, society, organization. And I'm not, I'm not trying to use your podcast to plug this product, but they, <laughs> they, they have private tasting rooms in um, Scotland and England that if you're a, a card-carrying member, you can go in and taste all of their product, and they have a quarterly publication. It, it's a nice little group to be part of. Mm-hmm. You know, as a cachet, if you want to buy some, you have to produce your membership card. Membership. Oh, and sure. similarly, they only want partner bars selling it. So my client's fets were a partner bar, and they had 242 bottles on their shelf for six or seven years openly. Yeah. Advertising online, prominently and proudly displayed on their shelves. Liquor inspectors would come and go and say, look, this is a great operation you're running here. You know, all the things we talked about earlier, you know, miners and over-service and fire exits, health and safety, no problems. No contraventions in 25 years or, or however long they've been licensed for. And then in um, January of 2018, uh, there's a coordinated rate of both their premises and, and a couple other licensed establishments on the island. And liquor inspectors accompanied by uh, Vancouver police officers uh, with a rented U-Haul van and push carts and boxes, came in and, without a search warrant, seized, you know, $40,000 worth of scotch. What was the follow? What was the aftermath? How was that ultimately resolved? Well, it hasn't been resolved okay. yet, but I should explain why. Yeah. And the why is this. This product was purchased from a private liquor store. So it's product that has been uh, lawfully imported into British Columbia by a liquor agent. Markups and sales taxes have duly been paid. GST has been paid, purchased by my clients, put on their shelves, and when they sell it by the ounce, further GST is paid and remitted, and it's all recorded. 
So this, right. is, this isn't hot liquor. This hasn't been unlawfully skirted over the border from Washington State or Alberta. It's not bathtub hooch. Right. It's, it's a legitimate right. product that private liquor stores sell to people like you and I every day, and we could have it at home. Yep. But assuming you and I are members of the society. Absolutely. That's yep. an aside, and a yep. membership is, I don't know, 100 bucks a year or whatever yep. it is. But leaving that aside, this is not illicit booze where some sort of excise tax has been skirted. Right. But it's a term and condition of every licensee in the province. You could only buy alcohol from government liquor stores. Uh-huh. I shouldn't say that there may be exceptions in old licenses that I don't know about. But generally speaking, you can only buy from the government warehouse. So if you want to do anything exciting, and I'm talking about wine, I'm talking about cocktail programs, uh, I'm talking about single malt whiskey, that the government liquor stores aren't stocking for sale, you can't have it. Uh-huh. Doesn't mean... Dozens and dozens of bars and restaurants all across the province don't do it every single day. Got it. Just means they're exposing themselves to... But mm-hmm. the question that looms large is why fence? Yeah. And, and why, why then? Why then? Yes. And there, there are theories and, and um, it doesn't really matter from where I stand. But uh, that's sort of the backdrop. So where are we now? We challenged the what we say is is unlawful and abusive um, behavior by the government when they when they came into my client's premises without a search warrant we lost in front of the general manager of liquor branches delegate in june of last year then we filed for reconsideration that's written submissions only in front of another delegate of the general manager so this is this is admin law this is purely executive branch of government there's not a whiff of judicial independence, uh, you know, yet, yet <laughs> both the liquor inspectors who seize the alcohol, the branch advocate who prosecutes the case, and the general manager's delegate all get their paycheck from the same source. They're all, you know, I say respectfully, rowing in the same direction, as they're entitled to do at law. But having been unsatisfied with that, we're, we're going to seek judicial review from a justice's Superior Court of British Columbia, and that should be done this spring or the summer. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So just a few more questions, but these are things that have been bothering me for years. So I'm delighted I'm able to ask you these questions. <laughs> One, can I yet legally bring wine back from Calgary? And if so, when did that change? And if not, why not? So because you're a lawyer, you're probably familiar with the Como decision. Supreme Court of Canada, Gerard Como... New Brunswick resident, pensioner of some description, as I understand it, regularly yes, would drive from New Brunswick, right? out of New Brunswick into, into Quebec, Quebec. Yeah. would fill his trunk up with all sorts of two-fours and beer and wine and would drive back to, I think he was Campbellton, so you know, northern New Brunswick somewhere. And the idea was just to circumvent pricing. You know, just it's just a heck of a lot cheaper. I think it was as a gas station on a reserve in Quebec. So probably the cheapest, you know, booze, certainly in that part of the, the world, if not the country. And the RCMP, for whatever reason, took it upon themselves that fateful week to monitor this sort of traffic with their counterparts in Quebec. Pulled them over, issued him a $400 ticket for being in possession of alcohol, not purchased through the New Brunswick Liquor Branch, Liquor Commission, whatever they're called. And rather than pay the $400 ticket, 
we had a constitutional challenge that a provincial court judge sitting in New Brunswick said, you know what, this New Brunswick monopoly on liquor as it relates to preventing residents from bringing liquor from other provinces is unconstitutional. And there was a historic constitutional analysis of, of I think it's one, section 121 of the constitution that was supposed to be the free trade provision. The, the New Brunswick Court of Appeal didn't hear it. It went right to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the Supreme Court of Canada gave us this fulsome analysis of what Section 121 of the Charter, uh, the Constitution, is supposed to mean. And boiling it down, they disagreed with the provincial court judge. They said, look, provinces can control how liquor is possessed, you know, purchased, sold in their jurisdiction provided the, that is the purpose, is a sort of a, a pith and substance analysis, mm-hmm. and it is not designed to discriminate against interprovincial sales. So they said, look, liquor law is largely always a health and safety first and foremost stated purpose of provincial legislation, although I think it's also largely a moneymaker for provinces. <laughs> but, but the stated yeah, yeah. purpose is... Yeah. Look, you know, we, we want to keep New Brunswickers safe. We want to keep black market booze out of circulation. So we, we want to keep tabs on where you get alcohol from. So um, after that decision came down, there was a slight change to the Federal Importation of Intoxicating Spirits Act or something. But that is the federal piece of legislation, which is a post-prohibition piece of legislation, federal legislation that says any alcohol imported into Canada must be imported through the provincial liquor boards and they changed a line that says any liquor essentially they they allowed the discretion to be that i can now bring alcohol into british columbia from alberta that wasn't purchased through the bc liquor branch but it was a legislative a, a distinctly legislative response to that supreme court yeah decision. I, I think so i mean not overtly changed but yeah. but Shortly after that decision, the federal legislation was changed, which made the provinces in turn strip away the, the limits in provincial regulations that capped how much you can bring in from the provinces. So that language that capped Mr. Como's amount of alcohol he could bring in from, inter- the, from Quebec, which most of us, frankly, I don't think most Canadians were aware right, that there yeah. was a cap. Yes. on how much alcohol you could bring in from a different province because there's no there's no borders there's, right there's no particular inspection there's no t- unless i guess you've got the RCMP <laughs> I mean, yeah i mean if, i guess if if you're if if the suspension springs in your truck are weighed <laughs> down by the the, the bud light 24s right. uh, but it was you're creating sparks along yeah you know it was something like you know a couple bottles of wine and 36 bottles of beer or something was on the books but then after the federal act changed the provinces struck that regulation of their act. So now, to answer your question, you can, on your person, bring back from Alberta as much alcohol as you want. On my person? You cannot order it. Aha. Uh-huh. So right. you can go to Calgary, where wine and scotch are very cheap by BC standards. We can talk about why. And bring back all you want. But what you can't do is call up you know, the Kensington wine and scotch shop and say, hey, I want six bottles of scotch. Will you ship it to me? They can't do that. Okay. So why the big price differences and why can't they ship it to me? Why can't they ship it to you is just policy. Okay. That's that just... So it's just 
this is just some mechanism to limit the amount of interprovincial transfer, and it's reasonable that if I fly to Calgary and I'm coming back, and I can fit two bottles of wine in my briefcase, you can bring those. That's right. I mean, as I understand it, Victoria could change the regulation if they wanted to. They don't. I, I think my own theory is the provinces all want to maintain their monopoly on the internet sale of alcohol. We don't see that yet in BC, but right now private liquor stores are the only ones who can sell online. But you're only a private liquor store if you have a brick-and-mortar location. We, so we don't have digital liquor licenses just yet. And I think that's because the province wants to, at some point in time, roll out mm, a big digital bclicorestore.ca and you can roll on there and you can order your wine and beer and spirits and it'll be delivered and that will be incredibly lucrative. So I get, I get a lot of cold calls about people who want to set up essentially just a warehouse, Amazon style, where they fill liquor orders and don't have to have a street presence. Right. And that, I think that'd be pretty profitable, but I think the government wants that. So that's my best guess about why why there's still a prohibition for me calling up Alberta. If there wasn't that prohibition in place, I expect everyone would just buy certainly higher-end wine and scotch and cognac or whatever right. from Alberta. As, as soon as the shipping costs right. are Cause, cause I, by the savings. Right. I, I, I can get an order of, of scotch and from Calgary, surely on 24-hour notice on a you know Thursday night, I fill in my scotch requirements for the weekend, I get it Friday afternoon, away you go. But why is it cheaper? So in BC, like... I think all of the other province except for Alberta, BC has a monopoly over the warehousing and distribution of alcohol. We talked a bit about that earlier, about warehousing. And this has been litigated to death. I think the issue, the issue is now settled. When provinces, a provinces apply a markup to alcohol. It, it's not a tax. It's a proprietary markup because once, whether it's a manufacturer, so a winery, distillery, brewery, once that liquid becomes an alcohol pursuant to contract it's immediately deemed to be possession of her majesty and from that point onwards the winery distillery brewery just sells it on behalf of the government and similar regime applies with imported alcohol so for wine for example the first 1175 of per liter cost of wine is subject to an 89 percent markup and then on after that it's something like 27 percent so if you have a cheap wine, it's landed cost, so it's two or three euros in Italy, you ship it over here, you pay you know, your duty and, and um, transportation and warehousing costs, two or three euros, now it's like seven or eight or nine euros, so maybe it's like $14, so now you like almost, eight, so you almost double it, yeah. yeah, you almost double it right away, yeah. plus 27% on the difference. Okay, so, so, you know, your two or three euro wine is $14 landed in BC is now $27 wholesale cost. And now, of course, we apply 15% uh, or the, the GST on top of that, right? So right. you tax on top of all of that amount. In Alberta, $3 flat. Ah, okay. Flat. So the Yellowtail Shiraz, the $3 is probably, I don't know how different that is than the BC markup. Right, right. but on the cheaper, so... But on the Bordeaux's and the Burgundy's and the limited releases from anywhere else in the world, 
it's a three dollar flat flat markup. markup. It is drastic. I, I don't have the figures on Scotch off the top of my oh, head, huge. but but yeah. but that shows you because they privatized warehousing distribution. It's a company called Connect. I think they just signed a, another 10-year deal. I mean, technically, pursuant to that federal statute we talked about that was amended earlier, the AGLC still has to be the port of entry, but they have contracted out the distribution and the warehousing. So there's a bunch. There's a couple of decided cases. Um, unfiltered Brewing, Nova Scotia Court of Appeal, Toronto Distilling, Ontario Court of Appeal, where a small brewer and a small distiller respectively said, these markups, wine we said was 89% and then 27%, what the beer was in Nova Scotia and the hard liquor in, in Ontario would be similarly high. high. Alcohol yeah. tends, hard alcohol tends to be north of 100%. I mean, wow. in, in BC, I think it's 127% on the first $21 value per liter of scotch or something. So, you know, again, if you have scotch, it's 80 or $90. You can imagine the stack up. But point is, Two courts of appeal, Ontario and Nova Scotia, have said this is this is not a tax. This is a proprietary charge that the government is levying, levying over product that it owns, albeit it never puts its hands on unfiltered brewing's beer. It is made on premises and sold off premises, never warehoused or marketed. Likewise with Toronto Distilling, which I think is now ceased trading, but it's a proprietary charge. It's our product. We can mark it up as much as we want and we don't need the legislature to weigh in on it. it's not a tax we're not engaging in taxation competency this is just a contractual markup on product that we own wow and the powers that be in british columbia have decided that this is the markup regime we want on wine and alberta has said we get our coffers filled from other resources other sources and uh, we don't need that so as a result wine and another liquor is drastically cheaper Wow. Yeah. Can you explain in a little more detail the concept of the product becoming the property of the government yeah. on the magic of distillation or yeah. the magic of fermentation? Yeah. So as soon as the liquid contains a certain percentage of alcohol, how does that work? How does it become the property of the government and then the regime kick in so that the producer is merely selling the government's product? It, so it's largely it's largely by contract, yeah. and, it, and it's language that is to some degree mirrored in the BC Liquor Distribution Act. But uh, in, in you know in BC we've got like the I think again all of the provinces are a pretty similar model. It's a contract of adhesion that is <laughs> the contract. It's right over there on the wall. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. right. And you know what? We're going to update it every year. Yeah. And we don't really need you to look at it or sign it or understand it. The contract will just be updated. Just and be the contract. It's available on the website if you want to look at it. Right. Right. Yeah, and that's exactly what it says. And, and I, my understanding is since time immemorial, that has been the regime, is that you make it, it becomes alcohol, and now if you're a manufacturer, you sell it on our behalf. And that is how we get around the tricky issue of, well, if... I want to make profit off it, and I do it by way of a tax. Only legislatures are competent to levy tax because we don't have taxation without representation in, in sort of the Western world. And, you know, liquor boards um, have, and provinces have always enjoyed a great degree of, of uh, profit off of the sale of liquor and just constantly increasing the value of, of that uh, markup. 
So it's a term built right into the yes. manufacturing agreement. So, right. Graham, go to the website, and you want to open a brewery, distillery. There it is. There yeah. it is. It is a certain clause, and it says, this is how it's going to work, and you're going to sell it, and you are going to remit to us every two weeks a certain percentage of your sales, and we're going to be good enough to let you keep the balance. Right. But I'll tell you what. You report to us, but whenever we like, we'll send in our team to double-check your math. Just to make sure that you're reporting the correct numbers to us. And we may not double-check your math for months or years. But when we do... We may serve you with a whopper of a six-figure bill that wow. we've decided you have failed to remit. Sounds like some more work for Dan. Potentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I now understand, I think, why wine is so expensive in British Columbia. Why is it that I can only buy it legally at government liquor stores and at private liquor stores and at restaurants. I guess my question is really, why can't I pick up a bottle of wine when I'm getting groceries at Safeway? Hmm. Safeway is a good example. There are now 30 or so wine on shelf licenses in BC. They started rolling them out a couple years ago. Pretty expensive. I think... They were auctioned off. I needed to put $25,000 down if you wanted to be in the auction. So it was only the overweighty group and Loblaws who bought them all, generally speaking. So you have to have a fair amount of money to play in the game. But the problem is these wine-on-shelf licenses, which is a provincial banned license, right? Liquor is administered provincially in British Columbia don't necessarily jive with municipal bylaws about locations of liquor licenses. Right, okay. <clears throat> Here we would come back into at least considerations that touch on the liquor primary versus restaurant, which is basically where do we want liquor available for purchase? Absolutely. in front of whom? Absolutely. So, for example, in Vancouver, we don't have wine on grocery stores because the problem is show me a grocery store in downtown Vancouver that is not currently within one kilometer of a bunch of other liquor stores. Right. Of course. Don't. Yeah. That is the case in more suburban areas. I think Cologne already has a couple up and running, and there may be some in Surrey and Richmond. I mean, 30 in the province is not a lot, um, but that's how many licenses have been issued, and I think they're up and trying to get up and running. But, but that is, that's the problem, is you still have a local level of government who is going to have their own bylaw restrictions on, on liquor license density, which is, you know, protects the existence, of course, of, of existing licensees or protects their economic interest, I suppose. Um, and, and maybe there's a public health and safety concern, too. I mean, too many liquor stores in, in close proximity, I suppose, could create bedlam or chaos or something like that. <laughs> yeah, so it, it, it's, it's in the works. We now know because of an adverse World Trade Organization ruling that the BC wine only restriction that was initially in place has been repealed. So now it's possible for a licensee to sell all sorts of wine. Although I understand some um, grocery stores plan on still doing just BC wine. Um, so it, it's not something admittedly I know a lot about, but probably because I've never been to one. Right. I've, I've never dealt, I've never <laughs> yeah, seen it. I've never yeah, dealt with it. You've never been to one of the 30. <laughs> That's right. Well, last question. It's sort of a, Two-part one. You're a blogger. Where can people find you? And one of the places I'm going to say is at Alcohol and Advocacy, which is on my new beer opener. That's right. And you kindly gave me earlier today. 
So tell us about that and then and then where my listeners can uh, find out what you're up to. Uh, yeah, so I am a partner at Owen Bird Law Corporation in downtown Vancouver. It's a full-service law firm, and I'm a litigator, and I bring my litigation skills to uh, liquor law. So, you know, for the purpose of this conversation, I advocate for licensees, hospitality, manufacturing, importing, uh, both at the tribunal level and at the superior court. And the stuff that I'm either assisting my clients with or that I need to read for background, I incorporate into blogs. So Alcohol and Advocacy is the name of my blog. You can find it at alcoholandadvocacy.com, but I also bought bcliquorlaw.com. So that, that may be easier for people. Okay, and it redirects to your blog. And it redirects. Yeah. Okay. It goes to the same yeah. place. And everything from, you know, I, was, I took a gap year. I went to Thailand. I taught English for a bit found this whiskey I really love. I want to bring it back to Canada. How can I be an importer? I've got information on that. All the way up to uh, Ron Corelli and Plessy, you know, a 1950s Supreme Court of Canada case that law students everywhere always learn. And I just reread it again for the first time in, you know, 10 years. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, you know, Ron Corelli was, you know, 1950s. The, the, the Canada and the hospitality landscape was very different. But here's a case where you got Justice Rand, Supreme Court of Canada, saying, like, having a liquor license is a fundamental right of being in business and offering wine with food and how important that is. And when the powers that be want to take that away from you or limit it in any way, they have to do so fairly and in you know an even-handed and non-arbitrary manner. And you know, when you're a law student before you're, you know, entrenched in, in the day-to-day practice and, and you know people who actually run bars and restaurants or know them as they did now. I mean, I was bartending back then, but not thinking about this stuff. Yeah, you sit back and go 70 years later and go, wow, with everything that's going on, you know, with with regulatory law and, and health and safety, those words are as true now as they were then. Like, you know, how much has changed, but also how much maybe hasn't changed. Maybe stays so the same. So that's a long way of saying that I, I write about kind of anything and everything that, that touches on liquor law and hospitality, and, and I blog about it and... Some months I'm there once or twice with new content, and, and sometimes it's, you know, check back in two months. Sure, a little, a little longer. Yeah. Well, you know, it has been perhaps since law school since I've read uh, Ron Corelli and Duplessis. So yeah. uh, I think I'm going to go back and read it, and I think perhaps for the first time ever in my show notes, I'm going to have a direct link to a case name. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. And listen, Dan, thanks for, so much for being on the show. Oh, this, is, really this was great, it. and... If you'll have me, yes. win, lose, or draw, yes. after the FETS judicial updates. review, yes. we could talk about the decision because I, I hope um, the justice who sides with me and my clients or against us will talk about you know the purpose of liquor control and licensing in British Columbia, um, the duties liquor inspectors and the branch generally owe to licensees with respect to um, process and dealing in good faith. And document, you know, first party disclosure. What what litigators like us think about is like fundamental principle of knowing the case you have to meet. Right. Well, I can't wait to check back, and absolutely, you're invited back to tell us all about it. Okay, that'll be the trailer for the for my next appearance. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I'm looking forward to hearing what the court decides. Please do come back and share it with us. As always, thank you for being here, too. I really appreciate you spending some time with Chef Demoni. 
If you're enjoying the show, please tell a food-loving friend about it, and please rate, review, and subscribe to Cheftimony so that you'll always receive the latest episode. Also, please feel free to get in touch with me directly if you've got a question or a comment for the show, or perhaps a guest or topic suggestion. Do get in touch. You can find me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cheftimony. On LinkedIn, you can find me under my name, Graham McLennan, or you can always send me an email, and those go to graham at cheftimony.com. All right, that is all for this week. Thank you for being here as always. I'm Graham McLennan, and I'll see you in two weeks, right here on Cheftimony.com.